Well, we've been working through 1 Timothy here throughout the fall, and we're just about finished with this study. We're in chapter 6 today. I think next Sunday will be our last here in 1 Timothy. But if you've got a Bible, I'll invite you to turn there to chapter 6, and we're going to look today at the last part of verse 2 through verse 10. And uh, you can see a slide there. I'm going to call this message, Don't Let Riches be your gospel. Don't let riches be your gospel. It's been a lot of stuff in the news this week, whether you're paying attention to the midterm elections or the war in Ukraine. Also happened to notice that somebody out in California won a $2 billion lottery. How crazy is that? $2 billion lottery prize. Um, that seems like a lot of money. <clears throat> but according to today's passage, <clears throat> it might not be worth quite as much as it seems, even after taxes. Because Paul is going to line up for us the gospel of Jesus Christ against what might be called the gospel of riches. And he says that riches can lead us into a lot of different kinds of trouble, but that godliness with contentment is great gain. So don't let riches be your gospel. Let's look here at uh, the last part of verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and then through verse 10. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, which um, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through these, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. God, I pray that you would open your word to us today. And I pray that the words I speak would be empowered by your spirit. I know that... Um, my words alone are lifeless and dead, but your word is truth. And so, Lord, help us to hear and to receive from you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with the uh, tail end here of verse 2, um, which simply says, Teach and urge these things. And we need to ask ourselves the question, what are these things that Paul refers to? And so if you've not been with us for the first part of this study, uh, I can fill you in a little. And really, Paul helps us out also with, with an explanation, I think, to some degree by just what um, 
he's contrasting it with in, in verses uh, 3 through 5. But he's speaking about the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. We see that there in verse 3. In other words, we're to teach and urge the gospel, the good news, the truth that was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. So it's essential to, to emphasize and to teach and to urge this great truth that we all have a problem for which Jesus is the only answer. And we might think that Paul was a pretty good person, but he never forgot that he was the foremost of sinners. And none of us can get off with saying that we're not so bad. But praise God, we have been offered a way of salvation. Praise God, there is hope for us through Jesus Christ and what he has done. There is forgiveness, there is repentance, and there is faith. And I hope that you share personally in that faith. I hope that you know that Jesus died for you. I hope you know this truth that, that yes, you are a sinner, but Christ died for sinners, and there is hope and life in him. And I hope that you have come to that place where you have recognized you are lost without him, but that by his life and hope living in you, you have eternal life. And if I only teach this, if I only explain this, then I have failed to complete what Paul tells us to do here. Because he says not only to teach it, but to urge it, to preach it, uh, day in and day out. So I implore you, I plead with you, if you do not yet know Jesus, turn from your old ways. Trust in him. Receive his life. This is the gospel. This is what we teach. This is what we urge. This is life. And this is contrasted with the false doctrine taught by these teachers that Paul is warning about in Ephesus. And it's interesting, Paul does not describe to us what these false teachers were teaching in much detail, but he does describe to us the character of the teachers themselves. He, he highlights the errors in their character. And I think it's a good reminder for us that truth cannot be detached from character. That a leader's character is always central to their message. In some ways, it is their message. And if a leader does not embody the truth that they espouse, they will end up causing more harm than good. And so the false teachers that, Timothy, or that Paul is warning Timothy here about aren't identified by their teaching, but they are identified by their character, by their bad character. And here's how he describes them. He goes into quite a lot of detail. He lists numerous characteristics of these false teachers. They, he says that the false teacher is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. He quarrels about words. He produces envy. He produces dissension. He produces slander. 
He produces evil suspicions. He produces constant friction. He appeals to the depraved in mind. He appeals to those deprived of the truth. And finally, he appeals to the idea that godliness will lead to riches. And in listing all of this, I think Paul is saying to us, beware. Beware of leaders like this. And it doesn't matter if they're in the church or if they're in business or if they're in politics, wherever they may be leading. If this is how they lead, their cause will fail in the end. They will fail. And they will lead their followers astray. If they are conceited, if they understand nothing, if they have an unhealthy craving for controversy, if they quarrel about words, produce envy, produce dissension, produce slander, produce evil suspiciousness, produce constant friction, appeal to the depraved in mind, to the deprived of the truth, and the idea that godliness will lead to riches. This is a warning. And then verses 6 through 10 build on the last item in that list. That last point there. He appeals to the idea that uh, the, the false teacher is appealing to the idea that godliness will lead to riches. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't get that. Don't follow that. He says, the goal of godliness is not riches. There is great gain for the godly, but the gain is not in wealth. The gain comes from contentment. Contentment, And so chapter 6, verse 6 is a key verse for us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The gain is not in the wealth. The gain goes much deeper. The gain is a matter of the heart. It is of the spirit, the love of God for others. This godliness with contentment is where the great gain is truly found. And this introduces us uh, to the Bible's teaching about wealth and riches in general. And I think one of the best verses to sum up what the Bible teaches us about wealth and about riches is found in Proverbs 30, verse 8, which simply says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. I think that's a great perspective for us to have. In fact, it sounds a lot like what verse 8 says here. Look at verse 8. He says, But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. It echoes the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. God doesn't call us to vows of poverty. God wants to provide for us, but he's also not calling us to chase after riches. God has something else for us. Because he knows that riches are fleeting, that they are transitory, that they're here one day and gone the next. God calls us to something better, something deeper. And he reminds us of this in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. This is not the first time we read this kind of a comment in the scriptures. Back, way back in Job chapter 1, verse 21, words that are often spoken at a, at a graveside. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So this is the observation that there's only really two things that can happen to all that we have and all that we've accumulated, all of our wealth, all of our riches. Two things will happen. One is we'll give it away, and the other is it'll be stripped from us at death. 
My daughter Rosa is in the first grade and she is our budding Egyptologist. She loves all things Egypt. She's been really interested in Egypt for a long time. But this week was a special treat for her. She got to go on a field trip with her class to the Toledo Art Museum to view the special Egypt exhibit. And she was telling me all about it. She's drawn pictures of it. And she's so fascinated with the mummies and the pyramids and all the stuff that she's telling me about how they have these pharaohs with all this wealth and they, they pack their tombs with, with gold and precious stones and all this stuff because it's supposed to send them off with it into the afterlife. But of course, it was just left there in the desert thousands of years for grave robbers to come and find. That's what happens to the riches of this world. It does not go with us. But contrast that with the good news of Jesus. This is the exact opposite, isn't it? With Jesus, everything gets paid forward. With Jesus, even though we die with nothing, we gain everything. Or as Jim Elliott said, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The gospel is everything, and it goes into eternity. But nonetheless, 2 Timothy 3.2 warns us that in the last days, people will be lovers of money. People will be lovers of money. And I think that's probably been true in all days. People have always been lovers of money. But think about how much more that pull for riches is on our hearts now than perhaps it's ever been before. I mean, in ancient times, they didn't have the Powerball. They didn't have the stock market in the first century. I did a little research this week, and of course, when you Google something, you're never quite sure if your numbers are right. But as best as I could gather, Americans are giving about $74 billion a year to local churches. $74 billion. That's a lot of money. Until you realize we're spending over $100 billion a year on lottery tickets. Hmm. Now, then they say, well, smarter people don't buy lottery tickets. They just play the stock market. Huh. Which reminds me of something else I recently heard. The difference between playing the stock market and betting on horses is that one of the horses must win. But I say all this to just make the point that the illusion of riches has never been greater than it is today. And yet we think that wealth will save us. But don't let riches be your gospel. You know, we've just come to assume that economic growth is inevitable. Sure, there's going to be ups and downs in the, in the economy, but we just assume that, that wealth will continue to increase inevitably. But that's just not true. That is a, 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 a matter of faith and of belief, not of fact. And it's the preacher's job to keep reminding everybody of this. The idea of unending economic progress is a belief, not a law. It is accepted by faith, not proven by fact. Don't let riches be your gospel. The hope of more money shouldn't be the hope that animates you. It's not promised in this life, and it's pointless in the life to come. 
we have something more to live for. Of course, wealth can be a great blessing, and we praise God for it when he blesses us, but it comes with dangers, and that's what the Bible's warning us of here. Money has a special ability to grip our hearts and then lead us into all kinds of trouble, which takes us to the classic warning about money found in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now notice, this doesn't say that the love of money is the root. Um, it is a root, and it's not of all evil, but all kinds of evil. So maybe it's not as bad as we thought, but it's still pretty dangerous. And I've never forgotten the preacher I heard years ago who once told the story about how he was having trouble with money, worrying too much about money. So he just felt compelled to go out into his backyard, pull out a $20 bill and a match and light it up. He burned a $20 bill. Now, that seems like an odd way to overcome our greed, but um, hey, is that much different than leaving it in the bank? I don't know. We need to be good stewards. We shouldn't destroy federal property, but we need a better perspective on wealth and riches. We shouldn't allow it to control us. We need to remember the parable of the sower. Jesus warned us in that parable about the deceitfulness of riches that choke out the word of life. He says, no man can serve two masters. And that warning is true. When questioned by the rich young ruler about the way to eternal life, Jesus said, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor. And what did he do? He walked away sad. Paul Brand, in his book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, shares this simple letter written to God. It says this, Dear Lord, I've been rereading the record of the rich young ruler and his obviously wrong choice, but it has set me thinking. No matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, have any surgery, turn on a light, buy penicillin, hear a pipe organ, watch TV, Wash dishes in running water, type a letter, mow a lawn, fly in an airplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress, or talk on the phone. If he was rich, then what am I? Someone else once said, the measure of wealth is not to be by the things that you have, but by the things you have for which you would not take money. But too often, it's the price tags that draw us in, and it's the money that gets us. And I suppose now the cynics here in the room are waiting for me to exploit this argument by saying, we can help you with this problem. Just give a little bit more to the church, and the problem will go away. But that's not where this is heading. In fact, it would be self-defeating for me to do that. I would probably assume that it'd be much better for me to motivate you to be as rich as you can so that you can give a whole lot more. By preaching like this, I'm just killing the goose that lays the golden egg. But what's true of individuals is also true of churches. Our hope is not in riches. Riches are not our gospel. 
It has never been and shouldn't be now. God blesses us with means to steward for his kingdom and for his purpose. And we are blessed by the generosity of those who are blessed. But this is not what we live for. There's a story, I don't know whether it's true or not, but um, it's told about Thomas Aquinas, the old theologian who um, was one day visiting the Pope. And according to this story, the Pope was seated at a table where there was uh, some gold coins piled up and there had been a lot of wealth amassed in, in Rome by that time. And sitting there looking at the money, the Pope says to Aquinas, he says, uh, well, I guess we no longer have to say as Peter did, silver and gold have I none. To which Aquinas is supposed to have replied, and perhaps no longer can we say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What are we trusting in? What is our hope? Don't let riches be your gospel. Keep your heart on Jesus. And remember the promise, the, the focus, the attitude of Proverbs 38. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Gracious Father, I pray that you would help each of us as we wrestle in our hearts with what matters most. To remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ is our gospel. That he is the one who saves us and gives us eternal life and hope. And Lord, help us to have the right attitude with, with the wealth that you have blessed us with. To serve you with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.